When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's a brand new week and a brand new second captains at the Irish Times. Owen Murph and Ken all presents and correct, I think. Hello, Owen. Owen, how are you doing? I'd You're love on. you too, Ken. I- I'm doing alright. As predicted, my plea for advice last Thursday received only a limited response. If you remember, I was undecided as to which boys in blue I would go and support on Saturday night, what with both Leinster I remember it well, Owen. and Dublin in action here in the capital. In the end, I had some work to do, so I just watched them both at home. <laughs> Well, I think that was the fairest. Thing yeah, that was the fairest know. thing. I, didn't want I to mean, you didn't want to offend either of those great sporting organisations, Dublin uh, County Board or Leinster. The Blue Rugby. Wave of Dublin. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, you probably made the right choice there. Right political choice. Thrilling GA match. Yeah. Between so many them. thrilling GA games this uh, this weekend. Uh, the two games that were live on TG Gary yesterday were unbelievably yeah. entertaining. And uh, Dublin Mayo on Saturday evening was... A goal fest as well. Do you know my highlight from Saturday evening? Yeah. You might think it was Kevin McManaman's incredible curled finish into the top mm. corner. Park. Oh, yeah, that was the one where you uh, said you thought maybe this one was on purpose, unlike the last one that he curled into the top corner. I'm kind of like, Owen, you know, if a guy keeps curling shots into the top corner, I'm inclined to give that guy the benefit of the I'm doubt. Being you know? misre- I'm being misrepresented Ronaldinho, Kevin McManaman. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're sticking it into the top corner, then I, for one... I'm going to stand on the sideline going, Bula bus. Even more impressive than that very deliberate finish was Owen O'Gara. I've noticed this recently. Well, you notice it, I guess, when he starts banging in goals. Mm. He's got this incredible ability for his facial expression and entire demeanour not to change. In fact, when he scores a goal, the only thing that maybe happens is that he looks even more intense and brooding mm. and, and, and big. I when he scores a goal, but it's incredible. There's no real joy when he knocks one in. There's yeah. no like Kevin McMahon was a bit more of a smiler when he gets a goal. Whereas you know, um, is, they they used to say of Emilio Butragueño, the vulture. Please uh, don't th- say this. That his heart rate used to drop. How many times did he say that? <laughs> I would say over the, the years in different programs, Murphy said 12, 12, 12 yeah. yeah, oh yeah, I've read that. Between twelve and one hundred and fifty. Yeah, Odogara's heart rate does change appreciably when he. I, I, it looks as if he's so angry when he's. About to score a goal, I like. I I think you but know. This is how he carries like, himself on the field. Anyway, yeah, he's exactly, a physical, yeah. abrasive, yeah. angry sort of player. Maybe his heart rate just stays the same <laughs> at an extremely high level. <laughs> so he needs that check. Yeah, but he's the anti Butragueño. As for Leinster Munster, an entertaining match, but the thought did cross my mind that rugby 
It's a funny old game, Ken. Someone once said about rugby. Yeah. Rugby, bloody hell. I feel like, uh, I felt a bit like a school superintendent in class observing one of my teachers, who I knew was a pretty good teacher, mm. could be a little over fussy at times, but he's a teacher after all, so maybe that's not the worst quality to have. But I felt like I was watching him as a school superintendent, trying to handle a well-mannered but unruly bunch of children. So we know these kids are good. We know Brian O'Driscoll's a good kid. Mm. But uh, he seems to be a bit, bit unruly today. Stomping around like he maybe he was a bit too big for his boots there. <laughs> good, some know? good recent results and some mocks, perhaps. Uh, that he just needed to, he just needed to get <laughs> taken down. He did really well in the English oral. Yeah, maybe that's it. English oral. English oral. He did especially well in that. It being his first yeah, language. I would, I would say that the English oral uh, was a very good, uh, very good, good day results all, all around the class. Yeah, really, really high scores there. But no, I, I kind of thought that yes, well, perhaps um, uh, a more apt analogy is an unnecessarily tense uh, PE class. Uh, was kind of what I was thinking when I mean why 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 is he lecturing people so much? I mean <laughs> it's just PE, you know. Half of them are, don't even want to be there. Uh, so just chill out. You Mr. noticed Roland. at one stage that O'Driscoll they they had a couple of tete a tetes. In fact at one stage Roland had a word to Heaslip. I couldn't hear what the initial word was, but then Heaslip says do you ask do you want me to have a word with him? And Roland says that would be a good idea, yes. The yeah. next shot is Heaslip lecturing O'Driscoll about what Roland is like. I wish Roland would stand close to that so you could hear what Heaslip yeah. was saying. Jimmy, I would say something along, along the lines of, Brian, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to wave my finger at you, so act like I'm lecturing you, and then we could just get on with the game. You asked Murph today, you were going to, before Brian became a top-class broadcaster, he worked the golf beat, Ken, I don't know if you know this, for the San Francisco no, Chronicle, know, yeah. yeah. And if you think Brian... the Irish Times as well, though. Yeah, he did. Didn't he write a piece for the Irish Times? Certainly did. No, Back he, in 1992? Yeah. Uh, it was for the... Oh, the Barcelona Olympics. While yeah. he was working as a barman in the uh, the Hut Bar in uh, in Fibsborough. Wow. Well, it, he wasn't even a barman, actually. He was just a, a glass collector. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, you know, a wage is a wage. Yeah. Uh, so he was writing in the Irish Times and, uh, and working as a, as a glass collector. He also... Subsequently, he worked as a golf writer for the San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle. And if you think Brian is enthusiastic when we talk baseball or American football, when we talk golf, it's just overdrive. Brian mm. will be in good form. I can guarantee Brian Murphy will be in good form today because we're talking about Tiger Woods, who is at the moment injured, has a back problem, a bulging disc, Ken. He mm. missed Arnold Palmer's tournament, and that's a tournament that he likes playing in because I guess it's always nice to suck up to the old guys in your sport but also he wins it all the time mm. so he definitely didn't want to miss that he n- may now miss the Masters people are assuming he's going to come back but um, to play in the Masters which he probably will but we don't know at the moment and a lot of people are blaming Sean Foley a man we spoke to a few years ago uh, his swing coach who might be slightly overextending might be leaning a bit too much on the body of Tiger Woods mm. at this stage of his career and causing some damage I'm not sure about that because Tiger has had had some issues before he, the break from golf that he took. So I don't know if all the blame should be heaped on Sean Foley, but we'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and uh, I, I presume the, the chat will veer into whether Tiger Woods can win 18 majors, which we all thought he was going to do five or six years ago. But turns out it's not really looking all that likely. It's now, also going it? to veer into the whole idea of swing coaches. It's one of those things where it's a strange kind of a a job in that you have to be obviously very good and you have to be successful but really if you're successful with one client it's quite easy to convince the other clients that you're mm. amazing and then everyone starts taking you on a bit like sports psychology that there are some very good ones out there and Foley seems to be a good one and there are some chancers out there probably who yeah. 
get a decent career out of sport because yeah. they manage to get into the and off the off the cuff remark to one player <laughs> that player wins credits you with that victory you could probably squeeze three or four years of extremely profitable work equally that. that player can boot you pretty quickly I don't know how the contracts work but it seems very easy as a tennis player as a golfer to decide you don't like your coach anymore yeah. and to unilaterally dismiss him well it's the it's kind of the sporting equivalent of uh, you know going home and kicking the cat <laughs> because you know you can't that's the only way of venting your frustrations I mean you can't sack yourself uh, if you're playing like crap so you, but so you might as well just look to the person to your immediate left or right. Shane Horgan and Dennis Hickey are ready to go. Dennis, thanks very much for popping into us. Can I ask you first of all about the build-up to this match was uh, fairly feisty, I guess. Anthony Foley was talking about Alan Roland, the referee, and hoping that he wouldn't uh, succumb to any pressures refereeing the Leinster team. And Rob Penny had been building this up for a couple of weeks as Munster versus the Six Nations champion. So there was needle there. What, did the game itself match the build-up? Well, I think all that all that uh, stuff in the lead up, I think, was quite disappointing. I think ultimately it fairly backfired on fired on Munster. I think it put some of their players uh, under a fair bit of pressure going into the game. Guys like Tommy O'Donnell and Simon Zebo, who you know a lot of talk in the in the weeks uh, leading up to this game, including during the championship. Um, I think it put a lot of pressure on them, and they probably felt it a bit. But I just think overall, in general, you know, I don't think it's a good thing for people to be saying, guy people who are professional, uh, either coaches or referees, so Joe Schmidt, anyone who's met, met, met him or played underneath him, like, I, I don't know the man that well. Yeah. There's a man of clear integrity, you know, suggesting that he's not a professional, he's not picking the best players who he thinks are going to win him a game. Was he really suggesting that? Was it? Well, no, no, I'm not saying what Penny was, but that's, the, you know, that's the kind of, the, 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 the um, that's kind of the atmosphere that, that uh, he has been, uh, I think, working under. You know, going into the, um, you know, off the back of this game, he had to defend his his selection policy even after winning the championship. Likewise, Alan Roland, like Alan Roland, played for Leinster 15, 16 years ago. Um, he's ref Munster Leinster games before. I remember playing down the match in in, in Musgrave Park where he refereed the game and Munster won the game, and I don't think there was any question about what uh, his partiality in that particular. That match. was Anthony Foley's comment. He said, "You try and put yourself in his shoes. Who does he want to win? It's human nature. He's got a big job." To well, do. though, I, though I, I mind you, I was talking to Marcus Horn during the game, uh, you know, on, on Saturday, and I kind of said this, and he said, "Actually, well, you know, if you'd seen the live version of that interview, it was all said very quite jocular." Yeah. But um, even still, there was a lot of this in, in the lead-up to the game. He's asked to referee the game. He's refereed World Cup semi-finals. You know, he's Ireland's most experienced referee. Uh, he's retired. He's also retiring at the end of the year. So no, no coach, for example, a coach who could be taking over next year, and Anthony Foley will have to come up against him uh, as a referee. Um, but I just thought, in general, I don't think it's it's. Uh, I do, you know, I wasn't particularly impressed with the build-up into that. You know, there's, you know. The, the the Irish team what it was, is what it was. No one's entitled to have more players on the team than anyone else just because one has more. It's you know, so we need to balance it up. And we should have more. And I suppose people as well have short memories. I remember twenty, you know, two thousand three, two thousand four. had six, seven of the eight forwards uh, at the time, and the forwards coaches was Niall O'Donovan. Now, no one was suggesting at the time that the ex Munster coach was was picking. Munster players, the guys he knew, he was picking the best. You know, he was you know, Eddie. Eddie was obviously the coach, but you know, the best players were being picked then to um, to play for Ireland and to do a job for Ireland, and they did do a job for Ireland. And it wasn't because they were playing one province. Or the other. And I just, I just thought the last couple of weeks, 
Um, I just thought that was disappointing. And going into that game, you know, it was probably as bad as it's been for a while. And I don't think it did. Uh, don't think it did anyone any favors. The idea of the, the Munster versus Leinster divide is that what you mean? Was well, no, I don't think. I think. The, I think there's you know, it's a good bit of banter and it's a good healthy competition. But I think it, it went beyond that at times, as I said. You know, people questioning a guy like Joe Schmidt's impartiality and question, questioning the referee before the match that he's you know he's probably going to be biased. Shane, did any of this have any effect on the outcome? Do you think? Um, I don't think so. Um, although, unfortunately, I don't think um, Alan Roland had one of his better games. Actually, you know, um, I think there was a bit of um, scrum time wasn't brilliantly dealt with. I actually don't think he spoke to the players particularly well. Um, I thought there was a bit of condescension there and um, that sort of led to, uh, you can see a lot of players having a go at him. You know, you can see Paul O'Connell had a go, Brian O'Driscoll had a few nips at him. You know, unusual players that you wouldn't really uh, be sniping at referees were um, and that's, you know, that was probably a little bit unfortunate and maybe that was, you know, maybe uh, Rollins was feeling some of the, the build-up of the pressure that he was exposed to during the week but I don't think ultimately it had any effect on the game. The match itself, uh, Shane, were Leinster a little bit better than the the scoreline suggested? Do you think they they were comfortably the better team? Um, I think they just they, there was an inevitability about the whole game. I felt, and uh, you know, I didn't think Leinster, aside from like fifteen minutes, actually looked that impressive. I didn't think they were as incisive as they have been in some of the games um, previously uh, this season or or last season. I thought they were lying a little bit deeper than normal, and as a result, the uh, Munster defence looked very comfortable for long periods, but when they did raise the intensity just after half time, they rooked really well. I thought their rooking was very impressive, and that's when Leinster have played well this year. They've they've uh, cleared the ball very quickly. Their ball presentation has has been fast, and Owen Redden has moved the ball very quickly. I thought Owen Redden uh, was a significant difference between the teams. I thought uh, he looked really sharp. He sniped all day. He moved the ball uh, quickly, but. Um, I thought, you know, Leinster only really pay, played well for 15 minutes. And then they let Munster back into the game by some, some pretty um, poor defending around the edges. Um, I know they're, they're trying to implement this system that they have been all, all year. It's slightly different to last year's system where they're, they're coming off the line a little bit faster and they're, they're giving a bit of edge and trying to stop the ball. But, but um, a couple of times uh, in that in the period after their dominance, um, a few players were stepping in around the edges and Munster were getting the corners. Now, aside from that, I don't think Munster looked as if there were any sort of threat at all during the game. And that, for them, is worrying. And I think also it's worrying for Leinster that if they start stepping in against uh, Toulon at the weekend, I think they'll be exploited. I think the uh, point was made by Matt O'Connor after the match that Leinster just needed to stop forcing offloads at halftime, that actually they were playing reasonably well at times and just had to had to fix that up a little bit, Dennis? Yeah, well, I think both teams um understandably took a while to gel. You know, they've been they've been you know, obviously Leinster and Munster have both been playing away in the in in all being different team compositions in the in the in, in the Rabo during the Six Nations. But it's the first kind of time that a lot of these guys would be back playing together. So I thought it was understandable that it wasn't a seamless performance from either team. I think at at, at both at both you know, at stages, both teams had periods of, of putting together good continuity play. I think just Leinster's had maybe more prolonged periods, and they were slightly sharper when they were doing it. But Munster themselves, I thought, had had um, you know there was it was unfortunate because it was from their perspective, it was towards the kind of middle to the end of the second half. They really started putting faces together and, and getting around Leinster on the edges, and you know, guys like um, uh, Keith Earls, I thought, really kind of came into the game and some Zebo to a le- lesser extent. Um, so. You know, I, I can understand Matt, Matt O'Connor saying, 
you know, they were, they, he thought they were playing well and there was just one or two incidents where, or, you know, there's just, they maybe didn't have the precision, as he said. But I think that's to be, uh, that's, I would imagine that's to be expected. Are they by and large, though? They, uh, yeah. Were, as, are they still by and large a little bit below where they were under Joe Schmidt in terms of the creativity in their attack and in terms of those kind of things, in terms of the, the, the accuracy? Bearing in mind there was going to be a certain amount of rustiness in this game, but, um, you know, bar maybe Northampton away in one or two other games, are they still a little bit below where they have been? Well, they probably haven't been maybe as slick um, in year one of Matt O'Connor's reign, halfway or three quarters way through year one of Matt O'Connor's reign than they were by the end of year three or four of Joe Schmidt's, and that's to be you know that's to be expected. Um, as to be to be fair to Matt O'Connor, you have to let him take his team where he, where, where that's where that's going to go as well. So. Um, but you know, I think I think probably the ultimate test of that is going to be there this weekend, and exactly where they are because you, they, you know they need that level of performance. Um, and both teams will you know have taken actually a fair bit from this game, even though obviously Leinster will be slightly happier and the Munster will be. But both teams will have taken a lot into as to where they need to be for next week. And you know, when all said and done, Munster beat Leinster at the start of this year by four points uh, and this match was a four points swing in the other direction so you know there's still there's not that much daylight yeah. between the sides and given as I say this is for you know um, uh, the first game back when they've all played I, I think both teams actually sit back and say okay we've we, there was some areas of the pitch where we we, we expected to be better we're going to, have to be better for next week um and you know they'll 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 be happy that they've that they probably have enough in the tank to improve a bit and uh, and the question is can they improve enough Shane are you still looking for more in an attacking sense from Matt O'Connor's Leinster well, I think when they've hit their heights uh, this year, and they have done um, a couple of times in the, in the Heineken Cup, uh, you mentioned Northampton uh, away performance. I think uh, the first game of the Heineken Cup as well, I thought they were phenomenal in that. Um, I think they've been as good, actually, as, as Leinster have been at any stage in the last couple of years. I thought that the Northampton performance was phenomenal. They were very, very sharp. I just don't think they've consistently hit those heights, and that's difficult to do. Um, I think also you have to remember they're missing Johnny Sexton, and that's, that's, you know, that's a, a key player to be missing. He's, you know, I think he's, if not the best 10 in the world, then he's in uh, the, the, the top three. And to take a player that was so dominant out of your side and, you know, and then not have a, a 10 that, you know, is playing week in, week out. You've got two 10s in Madigan and Goffert that, um, you know, they haven't nailed down that position yet. Um, I think that can lead to, this, you know, not having the same level of performances that we've maybe seen over a number of years. Then also you take out... Um, the likes of uh, of Sean O'Brien out of your your in your your, ca- your carrying back row, um, it makes a big difference. And also, your you know they, they were down a few numbers against Munster. Uh, Keen Healy in particular uh, would be a huge loss uh, for somebody to carry the ball. But I, so I think when they've hit their heights, they've been very good. But they haven't done it as often as they have done in the in the last number of years. Yeah, no, I think I agree with that. What Shane said, I think our. Um, you know, Ireland uh, had a number. You know, when the the Irish team went to, uh, they won the championship. They had so many very strong ball carriers, and you saw both those teams at the weekend kind of one step back from that. Uh, you know, with Peter Manning not playing and Keane Healy not playing, you just didn't see the the level of impact with the ball carrying from either side, really, as you would have seen from the you know the the, the let's say for example the performance of of the Irish side, and I think both teams will be trying to. Going into the into the um, into the week respective weekends, trying to see 
and how they can improve and how can they, they can get more go forward on those uh, on those um uh, on those runs and uh, and the ball carrying uh, the runs and and I think as I said Keane he'd come back in for 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 Leinster will be will be crucial but Peter Mahoney now looks like he could be a doubt for the weekend mm. for 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 Munster that'd be a big blow um you know I think I think the 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 psychological impact of not having him playing for from Munster perspective would be probably the, the most uh, heavily felt out of any injury amongst the two teams. Does a coach, for example, Rob Penny, with this Munster team, look at a match like Saturday's and is secretly reasonably happy that there are obvious areas of concern or obvious areas that he can go into the, uh, the team on Monday with mm. and say, look, these are the two, three, four areas where we really need to improve or we'll get smashed at the, uh, in the Heineken Cup? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think they came to win. Uh, <laughs> you prefer to win and play for I, it. I, yeah, I think yeah. they came to win and they, you know, certainly from their position, their standing in the in the rabbit, it was important that they did win. Um, and I think it was a game they would have been targeting from, well, it was quite clearly a game they were targeting from a long way back. Um, and I think Munster, uh, I think for Leinster, for example, uh, will have slightly happier aid because they won the match, but they have just as many areas, I think, to improve on. Um, so, no, I don't think Munster would be secretly happy that they uh, came away with nothing. <laughs> yeah, I've got a straight, I don't know, I've tried to develop a new way of looking at sport here, Shane, and that losing <laughs> matches is good. But uh, conversely then, can it have a knock-on effect? Is there any way that it'll deflate Munster losing that game if they had, as Dennis said, targeted from quite a way out? Yeah, I don't know how deflated. They'll be deflated in the immediate aftermath of the game because um, uh, they'll be disappointed. And it, it, it is a Leinster Munster game. You can't underestimate it. And you sometimes forget they're you know they're big for fans, but they're equally big for for players as well. And that was a huge game. And I've spoken to a couple of the Leinster players since then, and it was almost they, they reiterated how important it was in their season um, because that that clash only happens. You know, generally it only happens uh, twice a year, and there's. You know, it's still it's huge for them. Although maybe we have one eye as commentators, we have one eye on on the following week. But that monster game in itself is 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 huge for them. And I think they. I don't think that ends now. So um, they can't they can't do anything about uh, having lost against the Leinster game. Uh, lost against Leinster, but they have a real crucial uh, part of their season um, this weekend. And I think. You know, when you do have a Heineken Cup uh, match the next weekend, it is the best thing for getting over defeat and even the defeat against your 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 greatest rivals because you immediately have to focus on um, on the Heineken Cup. You immediately have to to, to start working out um, how you break down to lose. Some some of that work will already have been done behind the scenes, but it will be. You know, there will be a brief um, you know, discussion about some of the issues that need to be addressed off the back of the Leinster game. But the focus very much for, for, Le- for, for Munster and indeed Leinster, looking at Toulon, will be um, the next week and how they're breaking down the, the system of defence that are being implemented uh, this, this uh, week and also what attacking moves um, they can do. What's the key issue, Shane, uh, for Munster, do you think? Uh, Dennis alluded there to Peter Manny's po- possible absence. I assume they'll move heaven and earth to try to get him involved, particularly with his ball-carrying ability. Is there a bit of a lack of um, quality in that area for Munster in the forwards? Um, well, they certainly, um, you know, they don't they don't have an abundance of ball carriers. And what happens when Peter O'Mahony isn't around is then I think you get Paul O'Connell because he's so he works so hard. He's generally the first one around the corner. That means he starts carrying an incredible amount of ball. And you know, for all Paul's uh, traits as a rugby player, actually carrying 
isn't one of his best traits. You know, so you really want a more dynamic back rower uh, making those carries. Now, Peter O'Mahony is so good that uh, he contributes not just in the carries, but he, you know, he's so important defensively. And we've seen right through the Six Nations, one of the greatest, um, ball, one of the better ball seeders in the, in the Six Nations as well. So his contribution plus just the aura that he brings and the and uh, the, the, the leadership as a captain, you know, it's, it's, it's really important. Then, again, that's more weight falling on Paul O'Connell's shoulders. Listen, Paul's shoulders are broad enough to take pretty much anything, but he still is only one man, and I'm sure, you know, he, more than anybody, would want to be able to share some of the, these roles with Peter O'Mahony, and, and the, the team do look to him. It's, they're not the team of a few years ago where they have, you know, if you look at it, go through their team, and every one of them is almost a leader. That's not the case anymore so much with this Munster team. There is younger players around there, and uh, they do rely on Paulie very, very much, and they do rely on, on Peter O'Mahony, and they'll, uh, you know, they will, as you said, be moving in heaven and earth. They'll be, I think it's vital that, that he comes back. I think it becomes very difficult actually for for Munster to win if if he's not playing Dennis yeah like I think Donica Ryan obviously is out as well um, and if they were to lose I think Peter Armani be, it would be a big blow for them he's obviously a niggly kind of hamstring could be a, you know something maybe more um, structural than that if it's recurring all the time and um, you know they'll, they'll obviously have to to look like guys like James James Cockton really to kind of step up and, and uh, make that big impact at Heineken Cup level Um which is which is going to be such a big step up against a, a team like Toulouse, who have so many big ball carriers, guys like Pickamol, um, uh, Nianga, all these sort of guys who who are seasoned, and uh, not only European players but also seasoned Six Nations players. And um, you know, it, it'll be a, it, it'll be a very tough day at the office for for Munster if they don't have that. The, you know, those sort of players play. I suppose counterweight to that is they're going to be playing at home and they'll be desperate for a win. So, you know, I think it'll be, you know, their, their match next weekend is going to be a great game. I'm looking forward to seeing it. From Leinster's point of view, Dennis, Brian O'Driscoll left the field on Saturday night. Now, Leinster say it was a bang on the neck. Certainly looking at it, there was a suspicion that there could have been a concussion. And I guess we're all a bit, bit more educated about this area of sport than we might have been two or three years ago. We had a big chat with the documentary maker, Steve James, about concussion in rugby specifically a few days ago. Are, are we entitled as supporters to suspect Suspect, regardless of what clubs are telling us, to suspect that something may be a concussion, even if we're told that it's not. No, I don't think so. I don't think. Uh, I don't think non-medical people are, are uh, you know, of any sort are entitled to start. Their starting position is concussion, and we'll work, we'll work back from that. Um, I think, rightfully, concussion is a area where everyone has been more educated on which is obviously concerned for you know within the broader game and how concussion is treated and um, uh, how young players uh, professional players club players uh, what the what the approach to that is and that's that's as i said that's that's very rightly so but i still don't think that that um, entitles people i don't think it should lead to a state where you know, everyone's saying, and you, you know, I'm sitting in the ground myself. Everyone's saying, you know, concussion is 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 the first thing people say. Oh, he's concussed. He's concussed. We don't know if he's concussed at all. Mm. Um, and I know, you know, the people who are there are, are probably, are, well, are infinitely better placed to say if he is concussed or not. And if he's concussed, he's not going to play. If, yeah. if he isn't that. But I, I listen. I understand why people are. You know, it's in the lexicon now, uh, in a way that it, that it it probably should have been more. People should be more aware of it in the past, but you know we can go the other way as well. So I'll I'll, I'll always start with um, 
you know, what the what the medical yeah and I suppose and, and that's certainly the f- a fair way to look at it Shane that you would look at what the medical people say and I'm sure that they're assessing them properly behind the scenes but that doesn't necessarily mean that a club is always going to tell the media and the public wh- what the issue is it seems maybe there's still sometimes a reluctance to say something is a concussion um, for because of the perception of that well I suppose uh, it's whether um, it's correct uh, for uh, for the the public I suppose to know everything that's going on with somebody's injury as well um, I think what the real crux is and the importance is not whether um, the public are necessarily told what the injury is but that the injury is uh, treated, treated correctly um, now the medical staff yes we're more aware of of concussion and concussion injury in in uh, injuries and um, you know the, the seriousness of them, but you can be sure that medical staff are now on red alert for these. You know they're not going to be passive about these things. And the idea of of um, trained medical professionals and and these are some of the best people in the industry turning a blind eye to concussions or um in you know or or trying to get players back on the pitch when they're not fully ready i think you can take that out of uh, i think you can you can forget about that at the moment because there's too because people are more aware of it there's too many um really negative implications if that was done and um whether whether the public deserve to know everything about the player's injury I'm not certain about that and I'm not just talking about concussions you know I think there's a desire in the media to know every last detail of you know what was wrong with the player um, I, I, and very often they don't get it you know there's a debate either way on that um, you know there's, there's even confidentiality and privacy issues with that um, but uh, the treatment I think at the moment uh, I think everyone in rugby is very very aware of um, of the dangers of concussion and also the you know implications if it isn't dealt with properly. Okay, uh, just before we wrap up, will there be a Munster Leinster Heineken Cup semi final? Briefly, Shane. Um, I think it's uh, increasingly unlikely. You know, I think um, uh, I think without Peter O'Mahony, I think it becomes very difficult uh, for Munster to um, to win. Although. I think Toulouse have won only one game away from home this season, and their focus is very much on um, making it into the um, the knockout stages of the, of the French Championship. So that may be of benefit. If you look at them um, uh, from a Leinster point of view, I think it's a hugely difficult challenge for them to go down there um, to Toulon, who have a number of injuries but have such a strength and depth and have such a power game that I think Leinster may struggle. You know, it's the one thing that Leinster find difficult to go against is a really, truly big power game. And it's exactly what Toulon have. Um, to beat them, they have to be more so clinical. They have to play exactly at the top of their powers, at the top of their limit. And they may only get one or two chances in the game and they have to be um, clinical on taking them. Now, whether, whether they can do that or not uh, without uh, Sean O'Brien and without... You know, is Keane Healy going to be back? How are they going to go in the front row? These are these are issues that we might know until the end of the week, um, and we'd have a clearer idea of of whether Leinster can win down there. But I think it's enormously difficult for them. Dennis, I'll try to be as brief as Shane on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I um, I think you know to your question, will they be playing the semi final? I'm not sure they'll be. It'll be a Munster Leinster semi final. I'd actually be 
you know, I think it'll be a Munster, Munster and Leinster will probably play each other again in the in, in the Rabo. Um, and I think you know it'll be as tight uh, a game. And depending on where that game is, um, it will be interesting to see what way that turns out. This weekend, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that both teams are going to get through. I couldn't say which ones are. It's going to be home advantage is going to be key for Munster away. Um, Toulon will be a big difficult ask, but uh, I'm really looking forward to the weekend and. And uh, I expect to see at least one Irish team in the next round of the Hiding Cup, certainly from those two from those two fixtures. Brilliant. Listen, Dennis, great stuff. Shane, thank you. Thanks. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Our documentary is called Head Games, the Global Concussion Crisis. So have a listen to last Thursday's show if you want to hear Steve James. He's not as sure as Shane seems to be there that the awareness really is particularly strong in rugby. He found some um, some evidence to the contrary, so it's definitely worth a listen. But Murph, you're concerned about Leinster on Saturday against Toulon. You've seen these... Well, the lads there were talking about the, the power game. And uh, I did actually see the last game in Toulon's pool against the Cardiff Blues, mm-hmm. uh, where the Blues had actually played reasonably well. And then uh, in the second half, it was the most brutally destructive performance I've ever seen on a rugby field. Three penalty tries. And uh, the entire second half was basically spent watching Bakis Bota and Carl Heyman like chest bumping each other and <laughs> high-fiving each other and basically being the most macho team I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, That's what money will buy you. Machismo. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really quite scary though because they will just keep running at you and running at you until they run over you. Well, you know the Beast, the South African player. Yeah. Toulon sort of have a number of Beasts. They do. They've the a, well, they've about 16 of them. <laughs> Two whole entire packs of them, I think. Coming up later today. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you oh, now. I'm going down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What are you doing down here, you shawny man? <laughs> I don't know if you had any time in your, um, between all the boys and blue stuff that was going on, mm-hmm. to check in with what was happening in the Premier League. Oh, I checked in with some association football games. Saw both match of the days this weekend. Really? Mm-hmm. And they had, a, they had a kind of match of the day to extra. They have that on Sunday morning. I had never seen that before. Yeah, yeah. They tend to get more journalists, print journalists on. stuff. Like but they that. also had Sam Wallace from The Independent on match of the day too. Yeah. They're gone print journalists crazy over there. Yeah, um, maybe they're uh, giving up on the ex-footballer route. I'd, yeah, I mean there was somebody l- angling for a little yeah. guest appearance on Match of the Day two next week. Sure, oh. Irish Times columnist Ken Early has a nice little ring in, ring to it on Match of the Day two. You'd get on well with Laurel. Laurel <laughs> <laughs> was wearing the most insane shirt that even Mark Lawrence has worn. Yesterday. I, know, I saw. It. I, I actually it was unbelievable. thought. I saw. I was like, where honestly did he find can that? Can you describe it? I couldn't. Uh, I mean, I didn't notice what he was saying at all until <laughs> no, no. until he said. Do you think that Dejaga's nickname is Mick? Mick prompting, Dejager. Pro- prompting hilarity from, from oh. everyone. Was, uh, Sam Wallace was laughing extremely politely at that at that moment. Yeah. It was like it was a two tone. It was. I'll, 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 I'll describe the, the shirt was a light blue shirt mm. with the color of a giant's shirt. 
<laughs> stitched onto the the collar in, in place of a normal size. And it was a white collar. No, it was a, it was a dark blue collar. Oh, was it a dark blue collar? Yeah, so it was a light blue shirt, and then a dark blue, massive, hugely some branding on the Harry collar. Hill sized. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, there was a little bit of branding as part of the collar, which was even more disconcerting than the size. It's it was one of the worst shirts that I've <laughs> that I've ever seen. Um, What's coming up in the you know, Ricky gonna... Ricky Hatton's you know shit shirt day? I mean that was basically <laughs> Mark Mark Lawrence had turned up for work in one of those. <laughs> we were, I mean, what what they were t- talking about was who can stop the red tide? You know, Brendan Rodgers. We have five hundred and thirty-three million supporters out there. It's an army. That's Brendan Rodgers said that after right. the match. Five hundred thirty-three million supporters, and that gives us a lot of, you know. Uh, mm. Heart, and uh, and for that reason, you know, it's six more wins and, and they're in the league. So we'll talk a little bit about them and and what happened over the weekend. And there are also a couple of quite big Champions League games this week. And I don't know if you've been paying any attention to the fixture list, but tomorrow it's Manchester United against Bayern Munich. And then we've got uh, Chelsea, Barcelona, Atletico. Also on uh, tomorrow, the following night is the uh, Chelsea PSG night, isn't it? Yeah, which is which is uh, pretty big. Time now for US Murphy. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Capitino's going to let him keep going. Got it! Touchdown! Brian Murphy, I know you really love the opening segment to your slot there, and we're going to talk about one of the men who features in it this week. Do you want to guess which one? Uh, let's talk Giants World Series with mm. the uh, baseball beginning in uh, in America here this week. No, no, no. I think I had a little a little bird told me that we want to talk about the guy who was deeply sorry for his irresponsible <laughs> acts. That's got, the guy, deeply like a, sorry. I, I do love that opening, and I hope the listeners do too. You guys did a great job of stitching together both uh, – legendary American highs and lows, too. And every time I hear Tiger in that, I think, God, listen to that guy. He sounds like a zombie. He sounds like a robot, just a deprogrammed robot or something. So that was back when he took the, uh, the SUV into the fire hydrant in the tree, the smashed-out window, which, by the way, uh, this Thanksgiving, it'll be five years when that happened. I mean, yeah. what a... <laughs> <laughs> what a story. <laughs> How surreal was that? It was so crazy. It was, so one day they'll do the movie, right? One yeah. day they'll do the tell-all movie. It was one of the great forced mea culpas of all time. Oh, uh, by, oh <laughs> come on, Owen. He was as, as sincere sure, as the yeah. day is long. Yeah. Come on. Uh, was, what, you non-believer you. There were no sponsors leaning on him or anything like that. <laughs> but anyway, we want to talk uh, about him and also one of the men who works with him because there are a couple of stories tied together here. But I want to ask you straight off the bat, is... The, a, in general terms, a golfer's swing coach, the most underappreciated figure in world sport. Wow, in world sport, that's a pretty heavy comment. Um, I, I, I'm not gonna, I can't go out there and say in world sport because they do it. They have achieved levels of fame. There are celebrity swing coaches out there, and of course, Butch Harmon, who I think you guys hear on BBC Sport a lot, or Sky, Sky, yeah. or uh, yeah, whichever he does the commentary for. Butch Harmon kind of broke the mold of, of kind of becoming the celebrity swing coach, and in fact, I think 
that might have been part of the reason why Tiger Woods eventually parted with him was that he believed that Butch was a little too into Butch's brand. And, and, but Butch Harmon, I think prior to Butch Harmon, you know, did you know who Arnold Palmer's swing coach was? Probably not. It was his dad, I believe. Did you know who Jack Nicklaus's swing coach was? Well, only if you were a hardcore lunatic and you knew that. I believe the gentleman's name is Jack Grout out of Ohio, who he would see. By the way, he would see him once a year. That was the deal. Jack Nicklaus would see him once a year to go over his stance and his grip and his alignment to kind of do that. Look how times have changed now. you got guys like Butch Harmon and the man in question that we're going to talk about, Sean Foley, Tiger Woods' current swing coach. Uh, you get these guys charging $1,000 an hour or whatever it is, and they're driving, they're flying in luxury jets now, and they are now you know, inner circle guys who have those credentials at all the major championships and who have become celebrities themselves. And you know, part of that is just the proliferation of media in general, whether it's a Golf Digest website or a Sky Sport commentator that's needed. You know, back in 1965 when Jack Nicklaus was doing his thing, you know, Jack Grout didn't need, didn't have the outlet to have a, a teaching a video online or to be asked to sit in the booth. So a lot of it is the proliferation of media. But now these guys have become celebrities, and they've become very important guys. And obviously Tiger Woods has brought them to the forefront because this is, I believe, as Brandel Shamley has pointed out, Sean Foley is his fourth golf swing. It's his fourth golf swing. He had the golf swing created by Earl that brought him all the way up, uh, up, up until he handed him over to Butch, who then handed him over to Hank Haney, who I remember a couple years ago wrote a book about his time mm-hmm. with Tiger, and we discussed that on the show, who then uh, left Tiger, and it was now Sean Foley, the Canadian who is uh, viewed uh, as a bit of a scientist out there and is now being viewed as maybe the guy who perhaps have ruined Tiger Woods' back. Well, this is what some people are saying now, Brian. I know maybe the back injury is a more recent thing, but Foley has only come along in recent years, post what we talked about there, the madness in Tiger's life, and way past Tiger's real prime as a player and prime, physical prime, maybe. Is it a bit unfair to accuse his swing coach? What is he being accused of? Is it, is it that he's, whatever tactics he's using, whatever techniques he's using, he's overextending Tiger and demanding too much from a, whatever it is, a 38, 39-year-old body? Yeah, it gets real technical. And if we start talking about, you know, bowed wrist and steep swings and shallow swings and stuff, we'll probably, the podcast listeners will probably drive off the road and, uh, into a tree. Ah, sorry, the golf, you know? the, golf, the golf nerds will listen and the others will come back later on in the show. That's well, right. the truth of the matter is that Sean Foley's instruction is so technical, it's over my head. So I wouldn't be able to speak uh, too truthfully about it. But he does believe in this thing called stack and tilt, which some people believe. And again, there's no real scientific way to prove this other than uh, the arguments that are made by some people online, and you can find them online if you just do some research, that they believe that the pressure that he asks for Tiger is more of a drive with the left shoulder down on the ball or the right shoulder pushing the left side into the ball, and he asks for more of a pronounced follow-through where the chest isn't necessarily facing the target when he's finished, but the chest is even facing to the left of the target when he's finished. And it's all part of Sean Foley's... You know, very successful swing, which, by the way, Justin Rose used to win a U.S. Open last year at Marion that Hunter Mahan has used to win World Golf Championships. And uh, prior to uh, his parting, Sean O'Hare, who never won a major but won a couple of golf tournaments out there with that swing. I mean, Sean Foley has a track record now of success. uh, But now the question is, given Tiger's body age – and given how many balls he's hit since his young age. Now, you know, this is a guy, you know, Jack Nicklaus 
who we keep going back to, played different sports growing up. He played football in the fall. He played basketball in the winter, and he played baseball in the spring, and then he played golf in the summer. So Jack Nicklaus wasn't hitting buckets of balls from age five on. He only really started playing golf seriously as a teenager, and you have to start wondering, and it's hard to quantify, the wear and tear factor on Tiger's body just from hitting balls in a very violent motion with a very muscular body, too, much more muscular than many other golfers out there, that puts strain on tendons, that puts strains on bones, that puts strains on discs. And that's what he's been reported to have is what they call a bulging disc, which is better than a herniated disc if we want to get into back injuries. A herniated disc would require surgery. A bulging disc can be treated with rest. So the question is, how much effect did Sean Foley's teachings have on Tiger's new back injury? And there appears to be some evidence that there is an effect, that there, is, there were warning signs out there that Foley's swing could affect an already aged and you know, a body with a lot of miles on it, an odometer that's very, very high. Tiger Woods is 38 years old now. And that is something now that he's going to have to fight going forward, and we're watching it right before our eyes. You knew it was serious. Not only, you know, there's times when he limps around and grabs his back, and you wonder when he's being a drama queen, you know, just Mm. trying to build up some drama. And then there's times when he says to Arnold Palmer, I can't play in your Bay Hill tournament. Bay Hill is about as, you know, next to Augusta National and Torrey Pines, about as comfortable a place as Tiger Woods ever plays golf. He's won there, what, eight times, I think, something like that, seven or eight times. So for him to pass on that tournament, that's when you knew it was serious. That's when you knew he wasn't joking around anymore. So the Masters is in doubt. He hasn't said anything about Sean Foley. You know, others have, but he's sticking with them until further notice, and it becomes yet another storyline for Tiger Woods in this drought that's gone on since he last won a major in June of 08. Like a lot of great sports stories, Brian, nobody really knows what's going on behind the scenes in terms of the conversations that are being had. And I'm guessing at this one, but it's, is it beyond the realms of possibility that Sean Foley said to Tiger Woods very early on in his time with him, this is the way I'm going to teach you how to swing the club. This will be successful for you, but it's difficult physically and it could cause you a lot of problems. If that was said to Tiger, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if Tiger said, that's fine, I'll take whatever's coming to me as long as I'm going to be successful. Yeah, that's, I, I agree with you. And again, it's you know, hypothetical. We don't know what was said between them. Tiger's a very intelligent guy, despite some of the silly life choices he's made. He's an extremely intelligent guy. So you knew when he made the switch, he knew what Sean Foley's swing was all about. And he knew the pressures it might put on his back. And he willingly went in there anyway. Now, that speaks to a couple of things. One, I think his incredible self-belief that he believes that you know, he's sort of indestructible and can win anything, and he's proven that for most of his career up until very, very recently, this 2014 season he's having so far. I also think he believes in his physical conditioning. I think he believes that his, his sort of revolutionizing of the golf fitness craze you know, has him in good shape to take these kind of things that he probably felt like, well, yeah, you're going to have problems if, if you're back. If you're not physically fit, I am physically fit. I am uh, the best fit golfer out there. And there's no denying that. My goodness, whether you think he took performance enhancing drugs or not, he clearly uh, had the fittest body out there. So he probably believed in himself, number one, and he probably believed in his training, number two. So again, now that brings us back to a, why is the back bulging now? Is it because of Sean Foley or is it because of the wear and tear uh, of hitting balls since you were five years old. You know what's funny? In, in kind of noodling around this week and ever since this stuff happened with Tiger, I was reading stuff about Sean Foley. <laughs> in 2010, 
right before he joined up with Tiger, he actually did a, a piece in Golf Digest on how to avoid back injury with your golf swing. No joke. You can find oh, nice. it online. If you Google Sean Foley back in Tiger Woods and Golf Digest of 2010, he gives you four easy steps to avoid back injuries. And he's like, here's what you do. Here's a common mistake that a lot of guys make. And here's what you need to do with alignment and impact and all that. So it's kind of ironic. It's almost like a smoking gun lying out there of, uh, uh-oh, stick your foot in your mouth. But again, I think most people, and while Sean Foley is a very relevant topic, the, the greater feeling is that it is, it's, a, it's a body age issue more than a Foley-specific issue, that he, he's just a guy who's, who's just getting older before our eyes, and he's seeing these things happen. You know, I, when this all went down, I thought back to the great Dan Jenkins line, and what a great writer he is. And by the way, total digression, but he has a new memoir out called um, His Own Self, a semi-memoir. And Dan Jenkins is one of the, for people who don't know, if not the greatest golf writer in American history, one of the two or three greatest golf writers in American history, very plain-spoken Texas humorist, who you guys should probably have on the show because he likes to sell books. And he's 84 years old now, and he's a great, he's seen it all. He was best friends with Ben Hogan growing up. I mean, the guy's stories are amazing. But he wrote about Tiger, of whom he is no fan, by the way. Dan Jenkins, very anti-Tiger. He wrote of Tiger way back when. uh, He quoted Earl Woods, I think. Earl Woods' dad is saying, the only thing that can stop Tiger is a bad injury or a bad marriage. And everybody kind of chuckled back then. Ha, 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 how funny. Oh, well, guess what? He's two for two now on that, right? With the bad marriages in the books, and now here's the bad injury. The, you, you're quite clear there, Brian, saying that the, a lot of people don't blame Sean Foley for the injury, even though there might be some evidence that the, that the way he's teaching him might be contributing to it. But it's a funny one. Foley seems to have a good CV. He's got other really good guys on, on his books, or it certainly has in the past as well. We spoke to him a couple of years back, and he seemed very impressive. But the whole idea of swing coaches and these people behind the scenes – uh, in a golfer's life, it's quite interesting in that they, I guess you just need one or maybe two people who you do really well with and suddenly there's a buzz. But is there a certain element that there's, these guys have to be salesmen as much as really good technical golfers. They have to sell themselves. I guess the way you do that is to successfully coach one person and then suddenly you're the, the, the buzz is about you within the game and everybody wants you to be their swing coach. Yeah, and you're right, and, and you know you, you, you look at guys and you wonder, chicken or the egg, did the, did the player make the swing coach or did the swing coach make the player? You know, I mean, because some of these guys, it's the old, it's the arrow, not the Indian. And it, but no, it's become a thing now where your stable of players kind of defines your portfolio. It's almost like a, uh, like a business with its quarterly reports or a, uh, uh, a band, if you list its albums. I'm just looking at Butch Harmon real quick, who's yeah. uh, rated by Golf Digest as the number one teacher in America. Look at, let's say his stable right now. Phil Mickelson, bam. Freddie Couples, bam. Dustin Johnson, bam. So you're like, wow, okay, that's pretty darn good. Then you got guys on the other side, <laughs> like David Ledbetter, who, and, and this is like a double-edged sword of the, um, of the swing coach phenomenon, because David Ledbetter is viewed as a guy publicly who can ruin golfers, and they actually have a phrase for that called lead poisoning. Lead poisoning for David Lead better. But Nick Faldo swears by him, you know? So uh, these guys are coming on, and, and in the last, I would say Ledbetter was kind of at the forefront when he kind of came with his academy and everything like that, sort of like the Nick Bolletary Tennis Academy in Florida. As sports got more specialized in the last 20 years, as 
people have gotten more, I don't know, sports has evolved into this higher concentrated thing. Swing coaches have risen in importance now. It's not anymore. It, it, it's almost refreshing now to find a guy who is a homemade guy. You just don't find him anymore. In fact, if you watch old footage of golf from the 60s and 70s, and you watch like Lee Trevino's swing, or you know, you watch even Arnold Palmer's swing, for that matter, these things were homemade beauties. And they were flawed, and they were unique, and they had personality to their swings. And you kind of thought, oh, look at that swing by the Merry Mex, or look at that swing by Palmer, the way he would finish kind of with that bent elbow up high. And now anymore... These guys have risen to such prominence that, that these, these are like cookie-cutter swings. And it's almost in some ways stripped the, uh, stripped the fun out of the game, stripped the personality out of the game. You just don't have guys with their own individual style. You know, a guy that jumps to mind opposite is Ricky Fowler, the young player in America, who we probably thought would have won more by now because he has such talent. He just can't seem to, to rack up too many wins. But he's a homemade kid, really, from the Munis in Southern California, and he was actually a dirt biker. Who, who rode dirt bikes in competition for a while, but he said he pretty much taught himself, and you can see it with his swing. It's a little, it's a little quicker, it's a little jerkier, and to me it's a little more refreshing. So, yes, you're absolutely right. The swing coach industry is, is kind of a, a, I don't know, kind of a factor on the golf world in the last 10, 20 years that didn't used to exist. Yeah, I'd imagine and now these guys be, are making, yeah. Absolutely, I'd imagine it could be a precarious enough industry as well, or a precarious enough position, because you look at, say, it, golf is funny, it's a bit like tennis in these really uh, high-profile individual sports where the sportsman is in charge. It's not as though it's an NFL team or a Premier League team where whatever coaches are involved at any level are imposed upon the players by the club. These are people handpicked by the players. I'm thinking Andy Murray recently got rid of Ivan Lendl as his coach, despite Lendl seeing him through his most successful period of his career. And golf might be somewhat similar in that the golfer starts having a bad year and he's looking at this swing coach thinking, I'm not sure about this guy. I thought he was good last year, but I've hit a lot of 75s recently. No, you're absolutely right. And it becomes like um, the guy's, it's like a stock, you know, and the stock kind of peaks when, you know, Andy Murray's winning uh, Wimbledon and the stock declines if, you know, he's not making the Australian Open final or something. And, and it, it waxes and wanes like that. And that's what Hank Haney went from a guy who was viewed as, you know, oh my God, to look at Tiger winning all, I think he won seven majors with Haney, something like that. But then it goes sour with Haney. Well, it, Haney was kind of a guy who sort of jumped off the boat after Tiger's brand took that hit. Haney sort of saw that as a way to get out and then wrote that tell-all book about how weird it was working with Tiger and the famous story about never bringing him a popsicle and all that. But uh, yeah. your stock, and now Haney all of a sudden is viewed as a guy, it's not like Haney's a bum, but he's sort of like a somewhat of a tarnished brand because he, he no longer with Tiger and he's no longer doing it. Now Foley, as a guy who rose up with Justin Rose and Hunter Mahan and Sean O'Hare and Stephen Ames, and I guess Lee Westwood's working with him now. But Foley's a guy who, if Tiger doesn't start, you know, if things start to continue to go sour with Tiger, Foley's a guy whose brand will take a hit. So, yeah, these guys ride waves, and then the wave crashes, and then they got to get up. I think Butch Harmon took a hit after Tiger left. I think it was like, whoa, what's wrong with Butch? He must be doing something wrong, and there must be uh, some reason to avoid him. But look at how he hung around 
and rally back by getting Mickelson, by getting Couples, by getting Dustin Johnson, Nick Watney, uh, all sorts of great young players that go to Butch Harmon now. And his brand has resurged, and as Tiger has stalled out, and then Phil's winning British Opens, Harmon looks like a genius. So these guys, it is, it's become a big ego, big money game, and these guys are almost the same kind of celebrity as the player. I mean, not quite, but man, we all know them, and we all have opinions on them. Brian, I wanted to ask you a question to wrap up, and that was going to be whether Tiger Woods still has a major victory in him. I think the Nicholas record is looking further and further away, the more problems that we see in Tiger's game. But maybe the more pertinent question is, how many majors can Tiger Woods even expect to play over the rest of his career? Wow, it's a great That's a question. Tough one. And man, here we are. I mean, the Masters is coming up. I'm of the belief he'll play the Masters. You know, I really do. And whether or not he's going to be 100% or not, who knows? You know, I don't. I'm, I haven't had a bulging disc, thank goodness. But people who tell me the back pain is brutal and it can be lifelong, and especially for golf, man, and any sport really. So I was of the belief on even through last year that he would still beat Jack Nicklaus, and I, I think I was always giving him the benefit of the doubt because he did such amazing things right before our very eyes for so long. I said, who am I going to, what, are you kidding me? And my belief was always this, that he's 38, 37 when I was kind of forming this, 36. I figured he's going to be competitive. Golfers are competitive now until they're 46, 47, 48. And I figured that gives Tiger 10 years of majors, four majors a year. That's 40 majors. Can he win five of the next 40 majors? And my belief was yes, because I thought that the Masters is such I always say, like, other than the womb, it's the safest place he's ever been. He feels so comfortable there, and his game is so tailored there, although the changes in Augusta National have not suited his game as much, and that's something we could discuss on another day. But the fact of the matter is is that I felt like he would win three more Masters. I really did. Because even in his sort of quote-unquote broken state, he's come real close the last several years. So I thought he could win three more Masters. That got him to 17. And now we're looking at two. And the British Open suits him. I think that creativity and that open game, and when he finds a groove at St. Andrews or something like that, I figured he could get one or two there. And I thought, there's 19. However, with each passing year and with new news of injury, my claim is looking less and less. So how many majors can he play going forward? Well, I still think he has enough desire and drive to to play. I'm going to say right now, for the next five years, uh, you know, of the next 20 majors, I bet he'll play 16 of them. But I could be totally wrong, and that back could be a big, big thing, and he might miss this year's Masters. But I'm going to say right now, I just continue to say, until Tiger Woods, you know, goes off the edge of a cliff and we're never heard from again, I'm not going to – I can't – I still believe in that talent, and I still believe in his Masters connection and a couple British Opens. So I'm going to go down with the ship on this one. <laughs> but I think he's good. I think he still has a chance. Brian, lovely to talk golf. Thanks so much. Always great, Owen. All the best. So he's saying there's a chance. Brian Murphy believes that Tiger can do it. 16. His prediction is he's going to play 16 out of the next 20 majors and win five of them. That's a pretty big success rate. Pretty big ask. I mean, yeah. Tiger Woods at his best. Did he ever have a run of 16 majors where he won five of them? I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I think, in, I think in that period. Well, he won five four, or he won four. four in a row, so yeah. Mm. Yeah, you could probably say, <laughs> you could probably say Tiger Woods at his best could do that, but... This Kurt Tiger Woods, maybe not even if he does nab a couple of Masters and a couple of British Opens. Well, if he does that, then he's got four out of five, so he's doing all right. But where do you stand, Ken, on the... It's something that we touched on last week, actually, with Andy McGee, when we were talking stats. Mm -hmm. The Sean Foley, sort of uber-scientific approach to the game, and the Bob Torrance, just go out there and hit it. Have a feel for the game. 
Yeah. When it comes to golf. Uh, and Are you I, more of a stats guy, a science guy, or would you go for the more old school? Well, I, I think um, he, probably it is an advantage to use whatever new means come to hand. Um, Sometimes so, you can overdo it. I mean, Shane Lowry, for example. Yeah, you can, uh, you can totally. You can on our TV show. It. You can overdo it. And uh, Colin was here at the Irish Times. Mm. He's very much uh, of the opinion that he doesn't want to meddle too much. He's got a good natural swing and he doesn't overdo the... Mm. I, I don't think he would work with the Sean Foley, for example. I don't want to put words yes, in his mouth. It's like um, Maverick and Iceman. You know what I mean? It's the eternal duality, isn't it? Mm. Between... It is. It's a lot know, like Maverick and Iceman. I- instinctive, yeah, instinctive uh, off-the-cuff genius versus... Uh, sort of, you know, almost computer-like mm. precision. You know what? I and actually thought it was Maverick and Goose that you were talking about there. <laughs> oh, no, Goose. Goose, uh, Goose obviously, of course, yesterday. Now, you know, what I, what I would say, what I would say is that um, I don't think either, either uh, way is the right way. I mean, they're both... The way to do it, the way to, everyone knows the way to do this is to take all of the statistical knowledge that you can, then forget it. Yeah. Well, then why you would you bother paying all the money to Sean well, Foley? You don't, well, really, no, no, you don't really forget it, though. No, you no, internalise it. You don't think about it. it just, it's internalised, and then you play... Well, listen, I, I'm, I'm imagining I, it Sean looks like I've tried to blow your, yeah. I've, I've, It looks like I've just blown your mind there, Roland. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're wasting a lot of time <laughs> and money there. <laughs> you, did, you looked really you startled and confused <laughs> by what I just said there. I'm sorry, Ola, I didn't I'm a stack. To. I'm a stack and tilt man when it comes to golf uh, swings, Murphy. You know that. Yeah. Okay. Stack and tilt. But, you know, so, um, the thing about Torque. science is that as it progresses, it becomes more accurate. So uh, maybe we're in the, maybe we're in sort of early stages. What did you say again? The guy's, guy's name was Axel Foley? No, Sean, you're thinking of Sean Anthony Foley. Foley the, uh, uh, stop yeah. making 1980s movie references on uh, Ken. <laughs> Uh, that that he may be in the position of a sort of a, an eccentric uh, 18th or 19th century inventor, you know, like these um, these people in uh, in uh, Gulliver's Travels. It's one of the places, that, one of the kind of lesser known places he goes to is full of these scientists who are inventing all kinds of stupid things. Yeah, everyone forgets those places. They always remember Lilliput. Yeah, it's always the big people and the little people. But actually, there was a, there was like a whole lot of other stuff going on. Some horses. Horses, very wise, very nice. The but I can't remember the name of the place where he goes with the this sort of island with all these scientists, and they're obviously making this ridiculous stuff. And he's like, "Look at these cretins with their ideas that their sides will, you know, somehow enable them one day to control the world." Um, when in fact, everyone can see it for the soft-brained um, idiocy that it is. Um, and and they and he kind of shows, but the you know the fact of it is that. Uh, over time, given time, mm. those guys will get it right. Now, this Foley guy, maybe it'll come too late for him. Maybe at the moment he is like one of those guys who straps a pair of wooden wings to his arms and jumps off a cliff. You know? Mm-hmm. It, did he fly? No. Should his dream be laughed at by the rest of us? Again, no. Because will people eventually fly? Yes. Will there be a stats-driven way of... Uh, of playing golf, which is superior to Bob Torrance's close your eyes and swing the ball, swing your club in the general direction of where you think the ball was? Certainly. Hmm. But will will it be Foley who does it? 
Not so. <laughs> Will this never-ending series of questions end? <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank, thank you for both posing and answering those questions, Ken. It makes me as redundant as the swing coach. We should really try and send an email to our guests in future. Yeah. Just say, you ask the questions and then answer them. Follow us on Twitter at SecondCaptains, Facebook.com forward slash SecondCaptains. We will be back with Second Captains Football later on today, during which we will devote probably 10 to 15 minutes discussing Mark Lawrence's shirt collar. Mm. Murph, thank Here's you. Hoping. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Thanks Ken. Thanks, we'll talk to you later. Thanks so much for listening. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.